If you brought a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Ephesians. You can turn to chapter 6. I'm Matthew, one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to stand with you as we hear what God's doing, and then to in turn preach the word of the Lord to us today. This is a church, if you are visiting, that I hope you quickly learn and discover for yourself is governed by God's word. And as best we can, we seek to submit everything and all that we do to God's word. Uh, Father, I pray right now that you would give me grace to preach. I ask that as we have heard much today, you would give us strength to listen and that I might be able to concisely and clearly speak the words of a God who rules and reigns. It's humbling to do this, Lord. I ask that your voice would be loud and clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I would argue, church, that the postmodern man, you heard Kyle mention that in his testimony, the postmodern man is by and large reluctant to speak in categories of good and evil. What do I mean by that? What's good in your eyes might be evil in my eyes, or vice versa. All, all of which, we're told, um, is simply the product of our respective cultures. There's no such thing as an absolute moral standard to which every culture must submit. And of course, in that sort of society, the ultimate crime is intolerance, right? The inability to accept somebody else's moral code. And yet, yet, we are outraged by terrorist attacks, by racism. When, when an Olympic athlete spins the truth, we get really angry about it. What, what, is, what does that prove? Well, I think it proves that our issue, folks, is not so much with the existence of right and wrong as it is with anyone or anything outside of us telling us what that right and wrong is. Does that make sense? Our, our issue is not so much with the existence of right or wrong. We all want to live in a world where there are moral absolutes that we can hold other people accountable to. Our issue is that we want to be the ones who defines what that is. I want to be the one who gets to say, right is this, wrong is this. And that's the point where we collide with the offense of the gospel. Because the gospel says that every human being is accountable to God. Accountable to God, and whatever is in keeping with God's character is morally right. Whatever is not in keeping with God's character is morally wrong. And all of us have failed to imitate God's character, and therefore all of us deserve his judgment. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how good your neighbor thinks you are, doesn't matter how good your relatives think you are, we've failed to live up to his standard. We're guilty. And yet we serve a God of steadfast love and compassion who has made a way through his son for us to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled back to him. 
And those who experience that change, who repent of their sins, trust in Christ, they're given what the Bible calls a new heart or a new spirit that, that compels us from the inside out to put off certain behaviors that God says are wrong and to put on certain attitudes and actions that God says are morally right. That's the offense of the gospel. What God says is right, we must do. What God says is wrong, we may not do. That's offensive. Because that puts me out of the driver's seat. And the Lord commands us to call good what he calls good and, and hate what he calls evil. We're commanded to do that with a humble and gentle spirit. And yet, I want to challenge you to never do that with apology or squeamishness, or hesitation, because the world needs to know, Kingsway, that there is a God in heaven who determines what is right and who determines what is wrong. And that the greatest single conflict in the world today is not between ISIS and the Western democracies, but between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of righteousness and the kingdom of wickedness. The kingdom of what is good and pleasing to the Lord and the kingdom where what is not pleasing to the Lord is celebrated and delighted in. That is the greatest conflict going down in the world today. And we live our life, we're going to see this in Ephesians, in the midst of that battle kingdom of God at war with the kingdom of Satan. We live in that battle, and before Paul draws this letter to the church in Ephesus to a close, I would argue that he wisely and carefully locates their struggle to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to love what God loves and hate what God hates. He locates that struggle in the midst of a cosmic spiritual war. He's wise to do that. He's careful in the way he does that. And he does it not to frighten the Ephesians or frighten us, but to warn us, to encourage us, to help us. He, Paul wants us to know, the Lord wants us to know that those who stand in the strength that God supplies will triumph over every evil power. Those who stand in the strength God supplies will triumph over every evil power. So look at Ephesians 6. We're going to read 10 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on, that's a command, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I was originally going to preach from 10 through 20, and I decided about, I don't know, 24 hours ago or so, <laughs> that there is way too much here to move quickly. So we're going to look at 10 through 12. Next Sunday, we'll come back again, the same section. But what I want to do today with Paul is point out that I see at least three reasons in this passage, this 10 through 12, what I just read, why, three reasons why, those who stand in the strength that God supplies will triumph over every evil power. Okay, so here's the first one. Reason number one, point one, the Christian life requires the strength of Christ. 
It requires it. All right? When Paul says, finally, he's concluding this, this long series of exhortations that he began back in Ephesians 4, verse 1, where he exhorted us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And in chapters 4 to 6, he goes through all manner of sins that we are to put off and virtues that we are to put on. Okay? For example, don't lie. Don't be sinfully angry. Don't steal. Don't speak corrupting words that that tear people down. Reject bitterness. Reject slander. Reject sexual immorality. And then then some put-ons. Walk in sacrificial love. Be kind, forgiving, discerning, grateful, sober, submissive. There's another offensive word. Submissive? I thought the world was supposed to submit to me. Actually, no. No, we're supposed to submit to God's design for our relationships. So Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, the end of that chapter, beginning of 6, what's God's plan for married couples, for, for parents and kids? And then, and then Josh preached on God's design for the workplace. We're called to submit to that. And at the end of all this instruction, I would argue, and I hope I don't have to argue very hard to convince you of this, because I think Paul's convinced of this too, that after all of that, all of chapter four, five, start at six, one thing is crystal clear. We need help. (laughs) Okay? Uh, We need help. I will not ask you to raise your hand, but I hope in your heart and mind you are raising it right now. We need help. We need help big time. I mean, just take, just take Ephesians 5.22. Okay, husbands love your wives. How? How? I should call on some of these younger guys who I've done premarital counseling with. Um, Daniel Ledone, how are husbands to love their wives? As who? Christ loved the church. Seth here? No, Seth's not here. Okay, yeah. Love your wives as or love your wife. (laughs) Watch it, Williams. This is on the internet. As Christ loved the church. I mean, that's like one verse in this whole three-chapter section, and I was thinking to myself this week, Paul, I need like a lifetime and a half just to figure out how to start doing that. And that's one verse. And there's a whole three chapters put all, and so it's like, I, I, you almost want to say to Paul, Paul, are you kidding? You really think that I'm going to, that I'm supposed to, that this is even possible, that put off all of these things and put on all of these things, to which I think Paul would say, hmm, are you feeling desperate and inadequate and insufficient? Well, then you're right where I wanted you. Serious, serious. Because that's a good thing to feel that way. And and if over the last couple weeks, months, as we've been preaching through Ephesians, you have felt in different ways inadequate, insufficient, desperately dependent, (laughs) then I want to say this to you today. God has been giving you a precious gift. A precious gift. Because those things are more true of you and me than we have any idea any idea. We're desperately dependent. There can be no obedience to God without strength from God. 
Or as I said earlier, living the Christian life requires nothing less than the strength of Christ. So look at verse 10. What's Paul say? He says, be strong. Be strong. Why, Paul? I'm not a weightlifter. Be strong. Why? Well, because the Christian life following Jesus is hard work. Really hard work. You know, church is a place where we should be okay to say that. It's really hard work. Please don't come in here, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus. It rocks. It's so easy. Liar. <laughs> if I do that to you, liar, Williams. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because it's hard work. The only way we can ever follow Christ is with the strength Christ provides. Because it's hard work, really hard work. And it's not the first time that Paul has kind of alerted us to our need for God's strength. You know, back in Ephesians 3, 19, he prayed. He prayed this. May you know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So brothers and sisters, what does that mean? That means that the strength that the Lord is eager to give you is nothing less than the very power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. That's what that means. That's what it means. That's the power, the power of God himself that he holds out to you in Christ. And when Paul says that we are to be strong in the Lord, what he's referring to is that there is only spiritual strength through union with Christ. You won't find it anywhere else. If you're a Christian, union with Christ is the means by which God gives you power in abundance. What do you mean by that, Williams? Union with Christ. I'm here. He's somewhere else. Help me, okay? Well, all union with Christ means is that through faith, we are spiritually united by God to the Son of God, such that his power and wisdom, a lot of other things, but we'll focus on his power and wisdom today, become ours and are available to us, provided we are willing to receive them, okay? Because we have a choice to make. Will we be strong in the Lord or are we going to go looking elsewhere? There are a lot of alternatives. A lot of alternatives. Be strong in your financial resources. Be strong in your insurance policies. Be strong in your physical health. Be strong in your mental capability. Be, be strong, be strengthened in your parents, be strengthened in your spouse, be strengthened through your biblical counseling, or even be strengthened through Christian community. Hold on, Matthew. Are you pitting being strengthened in the Lord against being strengthened through Christian community? Maybe. Maybe. Why do I, why do I say that? Christian community is a priceless gift. It is. You can amen that. And I'm not setting you up to be like, gotcha. No, it is. It's a priceless gift. But have you noticed, I hope you've noticed, how easy it is to run to other people and things, even good things, to make us feel good, empowered, satisfied, strong, instead of running to the Lord. And we can even do that in Christian community where we, you know, encourage me, pray for me, help me. And, and before too long, we've made community our God instead of him. We can do that. We can do that. 
All right? So Kingsway, I want to charge you this morning to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The Christian life requires the strength of Christ. And we need his strength, not just because we have virtues to put or sins to put off, virtues to put on, but because we have an enemy. We have an enemy. Okay? And it's his face that presses through every temptation, every hurt, every sorrow, because he is desperate to destroy your soul. He is. He is. Why is he desperate to destroy your soul? Why, why do we have an enemy who hates us? An evil one who hates us. Well, it's no mystery. It's because every one of you in this room bears the image of God. Young, old, black, white, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking, rich, poor, we all bear the image of God. And that means that whether you realize it or not, today, in the eyes of the evil one, friend, you are, whether you are a Christian or not, by the way, you are a reflection of the glory of God. And he hates that. He hates that. There's nothing that Satan hates more in the universe than the glory of the one he is radically opposed to. And therefore, he hates you and would love nothing more than to destroy your life and destroy your soul. Because he hates you. If you needed a reason to believe that the Christian life requires the strength of Christ, well, here it is, point number two. The enemy of our soul is powerful and cunning. Christian life requires the strength of Christ. Why? Well, in large part, because the enemy of our soul is powerful and cunning. Unlike the postmodern man, right? The Bible doesn't hesitate to label people as enemies. It's not squeamish about that. Never is. And in fact, it's, I think it's humbling to realize that whenever we sin, disobey God's law, we are ultimately expressing enmity toward God and often enmity toward one another. And, and until the Lord returns and makes all things new, we're going to regularly be on the receiving end of other people's enmity. And it's, it's one of the reasons, quick aside, why I'm grateful for the book of Psalms. Why? Well, well because they're so honest about the reality of enemies. You know, the, the psalmist just describes situation after situation where it's very apparent that a person or a group of people are seeking his harm, seeking to hurt him, seeking to harm him, seeking to destroy his life or his soul or both. It's, the scripture's real about that. Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Or Psalm 59.1, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. I think it's really helpful, church, to describe some people the way the Lord describes them. There are such a thing as human enemies. People that are out to do you harm, either physically or spiritually. Some of you are like trying to rack your mind. Wonder who that is for me. Some of you have faces that are appearing right now. I don't have to convince you. 
And yet, Paul could say, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Help me out, Paul. (laughs) Help me out. Because when you're in a custody battle with a non-Christian, you bet it feels like you're wrestling against flesh and blood. You bet it does. You bet it does. So, So how can you say, Paul, given the enmity we experience on a human level that's very real and is all over the Psalms, how can you say we do not wrestle against flesh and blood? Well, I think it's because, church, behind the face of every human enemy, there lurks another face. A face that doesn't excuse that enemy's responsibility for their sin, and yet a face that is all too eager to take advantage of their sin to draw you away from the living God and destroy your soul. That's the face of Satan, the evil one, and all the demonic powers under his control. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is going to be part one of two messages on spiritual warfare. I'm going to be very careful here. There are some corners of Christianity where as a pastor, the most wise thing I could do for you, for that church perhaps, would be to caution you against seeing the devil behind every bush and every tree and every rock. As if everything evil or wrong or messed up in your home, inside of you, in your marriage, in the world, is all singularly a result of Satan. Why would I be wise to warn that church about that attitude? Because there are three things that work together. The world, which is fallen, my sinful desires, which are fallen, and Satan, which is fallen. The world, the flesh, the devil. All three of those concurrently work together in, through, and around us to oppose the glory of God. We dare not highlight one at the expense of the others. Get you in trouble every time. But Kingsway, I don't think that's the warning that you need or that this church needs. As I prayed for you, this is the warning I think we need. I think most of us live such comfortable lives that we are all too prone to forget that Satan actually exists. Okay? Or if we do recall his existence, we relegate his works and effects to some sort of weird, like, spiritual netherworld that pops its head up in Harry Potter or, you know, whatever movie. Oh, that's interesting. Or, or maybe some dark corner of Africa. We don't realize We don't realize that the moment God delivers you from the kingdom of darkness, from slavery to sinful desires and the evil one who champions them and into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the moment the spirit of God redeems your soul and brings you from there into here, you become a marked man. And you become a marked woman. And there is a price on your head. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded. Be watchful, church. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you realize he's here? I mean, praise God when his people gather, God's here too. Talk about that in a second. But the enemy is here. He's out there. He's in your car. Wherever you go, he's on a mission to turn you away from following Jesus and the spiritual world that Satan and his followers, demonic powers that they inhabit, that spiritual world is no less real than your physical world. It's not. And I think we are remarkably susceptible, as Christians, to their works and effects. So I'll give you an illustration. Uh, last fall, when our church was going through a really hard time, um, there were many, many nights, I lost count, where I would wake up in an absolute terror. It was unpredictable. It was irrational, and it was paralyzing. So much so that there were many times I felt like I couldn't even breathe. And, and frantic thoughts would race through my mind. You know, Williams, you're a failure. Williams, you'll never be good enough. You'll, you'll never have what it takes. You're doing everything wrong. You should quit. And this would happen like multiple times, and I'd just bolt awake all of this. And so when I shared these experiences, because um, I'm not one who's prone to see Satan under every brock and bush, with my wife and with a wise pastor friend of mine, you know what they just immediately said? They said, Matthew, it sounds like you're under attack. They didn't defend me. Oh, no, no, you're a perfect pastor. Well, I could have shot that down. We all are clear I'm not. So, but they said you're under attack. They said, Matthew, that's not the voice of your father. That's the voice of the accuser. And I think he's tempting you. I'm like, you're nodding my head. I think he's tempting you to give in to fear and condemnation. And so what I started doing is every time I would bolt awake and panic, I would wake up my wife. And she's in the nursery, so I can't honor her right now easily, though she'll listen to this. And she would take five, ten minutes in her sleep-deprived state <laughs> to pray for me. And then I could fall asleep. And then many nights, two hours later, it would all happen over again. She was a faithful helper. And I don't say that, church, to elicit your sympathy, Okay? nor do I limit the evil one's works and effects to my battle with fear. The reason I share that is I want you to know and be aware that in countless ways, at countless moments, in countless situations, you too have an enemy who's trying to destroy your soul. You too. And, and if, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, you might not even be aware that you have an enemy. And I would say to you, well, duh, 
Duh, the only reason Satan has any cause to trouble with you is the moment that you start doing something he's not cool with. The moment that you begin considering following Jesus or, or you know, God forbid, the moment you decide to follow Jesus and the Lord redeems your soul, that's when he's gonna trouble with you. The moment you're opposed to him. It's in those moments of, of weakness when you realize, man, this following Jesus thing is so hard when you're vulnerable, when you're prone to temptation or to fall into, as Paul says, verse 11, the devil's schemes. You know, verse 12, he uses this word wrestle, which, which in the first century was the word they used to describe hand-to-hand combat. You know, grappling. I mean, it's not like Satan's just like, you know, well, let's launch an ICBM to quadrant four. No, it's, it's intimate. It's hands-on. It's close combat. But sometimes... I think we're utterly unaware it's taking place. Which is why I make the point that we have an enemy who is powerful and cunning. One man said it this way. Mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Evil, listen, rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It's a baited and camouflaged trap. It's so true. It's a scheme. It's a scheme. The Christian life requires the strength of Christ. Why? Well, because we have an enemy who is spiritual, powerful, and evil. So what are we going to do about that? What does God tell us to do? What, what hope do we have? Well, here's my third and final point, okay? We're going to linger on this more next Sunday too. Point three, the stratagems of Satan are no match for the armor of God. Okay? So the Christian life requires the strength of Christ. We have an enemy who is powerful and cunning. That's why you need strength. And the stratagems of Satan are no match for the power of God and the armor of God. So in a word, here's what we do given the presence of our enemy. We run to the strong name of Jesus. We run to it. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I've been memorizing this verse with my boys, six and four. We do it with hand motions. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Knock over your milk glass. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, Kingsway. The righteous man runs into it and is safe safe. Now, when I, when I speak of the name of the Lord, and when Paul talks about the, the armor of God here, okay, particularly, he's, he's not speaking of some sort of magical incantation. Wait, did you say the name? Yeah, I said it. Shh, wait and see what happens. You know, it's, it, it's not like that. It, it, when, he, when I talk about God's name, when Proverbs talks about God's name, it, it's simply God's way of summarizing all that he is, all that he's done, all that he's doing, all that he's going to do, okay? And over and over again in the Bible, the Lord describes himself, his name, as a warrior who fights for his people. 
This is, I don't think this is a theme that, that is middle-class Americans, we stop and think about very often. The Lord is a warrior. And in the book of Isaiah, this shows up all over the place. And Paul, Paul borrows these images. Isaiah 11. We heard from this this morning earlier when Katie read. Uh, the Lord's Messiah is prophesied with these words, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We're in Isaiah 59. The Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, what? Brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is the Lord speaking, church. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Okay, does that mean that Isaiah is saying, Matthew, that somewhere out there, God's like in space with this giant breastplate on and a great big helmet reaching to the stars? You know, no, no, right? What is it? It's a poetic image. It's an analogy. It's a picture of a spiritual reality. That's what's going down there. So when, I would ask, when did God do all those things that Isaiah prophesied he would do? When did the Lord's own arm bring us salvation? When did the Messiah secure his triumph over every power of sin and death? When did God decisively demonstrate his supremacy over the very worst that Satan could hurl at you and me? Well, Colossians 2. It's amazing, Jody read this earlier. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this. In so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or as Paul said earlier in Ephesians 1, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him as right hand in the heavenly places. Where? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. What does that tell you, Christian? Well, that tells you that Through the gospel, Jesus Christ secured the decisive victory over the enemy of your soul. By, how did he do it? By disarming him of his two greatest weapons. The power of sin, the power of death. Took them out of commission. Because apart from Jesus, friend, you have no answer. You don't. To the voice that whispers, who do you think you are? Look at you. You're a mess. You'll never amount to anything. You keep sinning over and over again. How dare you call yourself one of his followers? He's not going to acknowledge you. 
You should be condemned. In fact, when you die, that's exactly what's going to happen. Oh, oh, you're telling me you're going to do better next time? Well, that's like the 80th time I've heard that from you, so good luck with that. You are never going to change. You don't have an answer to that voice without Jesus. But if you're hearing that voice, friend, if you're hearing it today, here's what you do. Look at verse 11, Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What does that mean? That means you recognize that left to yourself, you're a sitting duck. You are. But then you look to Christ. Okay, putting on the armor of God isn't like, Go down the King's Kids hallway and find, you know, some plastic something. No, no. You look to Christ by faith. You believe that he lived for you. You believe that he died for you. You believe that he rose for you. You believe that in him, all your sins are forgiven. And then you proclaim this with Paul. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Satan. Who is to condemn? Not you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. So what's gonna separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, evil one, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, that includes you, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, that includes your people, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is going to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what you do. You know, and I say that with strength and conviction because I mean it and I love Paul's words. But you don't need a microphone and a stage to do that. And it's not weird, right? I, I, I didn't go through some sort of magical incantation thingy. What, what did I do? I, I simply exhorted my soul, believe, trust what God has done for you in the gospel. That's what it means to put on the armor of God. We're going to look at that in more detail next Sunday. But for this week, simply remember this. The Christian life requires the strength of Christ. You have an enemy who is powerful and cunning, but the stratagems of Satan are no match for the power of God. Focus on that. Because, Christian, I'll conclude with this, you are never, ever an underdog. Dare I say, you are never the Redskins. <laughs> I'm going to get hit for that later. You're never an underdog. You're not. What are you? More than a conqueror through him who loved you. It's amazing. Your ultimate victory, if you're in Christ, isn't in question. It's already been secured because those whom Christ justifies, he glorifies. Andrew Lincoln said it this way. The decisive victory has already been won by God in Christ. Amen. And the task of believers is not to win, but to stand. That is, to preserve and maintain what has been won. It's because this victory has been won, please hear this, that believers are involved in the battle at all. Okay? Okay? 
So if you feel and are aware of the schemes of Satan against you, friend, take heart because the mere presence of the battle indicates that Almighty God has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and he has said you are not going back. The presence of the battle, what tempts you to the most discouragement, that too points to your victory. Those who stand in the strength God supplies will triumph over every evil power. The name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I ask as we sing another song expressing our faith, which I trust has been strengthened through your word this morning, that the stratagems of Satan are no match. No match. For the armor of God, for your power. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith. I pray, Father, that we would recall with Paul, we would hear with the Ephesians, that when you said to put on the armor of God, you weren't kidding. You actually meant to give us your armor. And the power and the victory and the triumph that you yourself won and exerted and demonstrated at the cross and the empty tomb, you are here today giving that to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you didn't look upon us in our weakness and say, "Uh, good luck, I'll be back later. But you filled us with your spirit. You've reminded us of your strength. You've alerted us to the enemy. And you said, child, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Help us do that. And then, Lord, as we end by sharing communion today, would you do what I said earlier and fix our eyes on Jesus? As we drink juice and eat the bread, would you birth new conviction by grace in our souls that you have given us in Christ every resource we need to stand and conquer. In Jesus' name, amen.